you know, in some cases, you're, you're not actually going to fix the vulnerability because you have compensating controls and you've determined that it's going to be too expensive to fix or it's going to take too much time. So the compensating controls reduce the risk of that vulnerability and, and that has to be captured somewhere and there has to be a lot of communication to occur to get to that conclusion. In, in terms of threat intelligence and things, things like Sysakev, we see a lot of risk adjustment. back to the Defender's Advantage podcast, the Frontline Stories series, where we bring you the latest hot topics in the world of cybersecurity and things that can affect your day-to-day work. I'm Carrie Matry, Senior Director of Services and Solutions here at Mandiant, and today we're going to talk about CISA Kev. I'm going to be honest, I had no idea what this was before we lined up this podcast, so to help me out today is Steve Carter, co-founder and CEO of Nucleus Security. So welcome, Steve. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, why don't you kind of give an introduction of yourself and what Nucleus Security does? Thanks, Gary. It's, uh, it's great to be here. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm co-founder and CEO of Nucleus Security. Uh, just a bit about myself. My background is pretty technical. I spent most of my career building vulnerability management software and teams and programs. And then I started Nucleus in 2018 to build the risk-based vulnerability management platform that I personally was always looking for as a, as a practitioner in this space and, and that I always felt should exist. And so... Nucleus, for those that aren't familiar with risk-based vulnerability management, um, I always like to start by saying we're, we're not a vulnerability scanner because unfortunately, this is kind of the first thing that people think of uh, when you say vulnerability management. But what we are is a platform to aggregate and centralize all of the vulnerability data in an enterprise. So everything from vulnerability scanning tool output to um, reports from penetration tests, bug bounty programs, and things like that. And then we enrich that vulnerability data with threat intelligence and asset context so that you can prioritize it based on the risk that those vulnerabilities present to the organization. And then finally, we help to automate the response to those vulnerabilities. So the processes and workflows that you have to, you have to follow to actually get those vulnerabilities remediated and fixed. Uh, so we automate things like alerting and reporting, ticketing and, and uh, incident creation. But What's really powerful is, I guess, our ability to, to automate the, the organization of vulnerability data using uh, asset groupings and vulnerability groupings to track and measure risk kind of in any way that the organization can, can think of. So I know that's a, that's a mouthful, but I'll pause there. <laughs> that, is, that is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I, I worked in vulnerability management maybe 20 years ago, and it's been a thorn in the side of cybersecurity and IT groups. Absolutely. Since then and even before. So you just made a lot of promises that we're going to dig into and figure out what that actually means. But right. there have been a lot of advancements in you know, how you're going to deal with all these vulnerabilities coming at you, how you're going to prioritize and such. So that gets us actually directly to the topic of the day. So we want to talk about CISA Kev. What the heck is CISA Kev <laughs> and why, why should we care? Okay, so we'll start from the beginning, from the top here. So CISA, if you're not familiar, that's the Critical Infrastructure Security Agency. And the KEV is the Known Exploited Vulnerabilities List. And that's basically a list of vulnerabilities that have been exploited in the wild, that CISA has determined have been exploited in the wild. And the idea here is, is that if your organization is impacted by these vulnerabilities, if you have these, 
that you should probably think about patching these soon or maybe you know put them at the top of your list. They came out with this list in November of last year in 2021. And with it, they, they put a federal, a federal mandate out to all the civilian agencies to patch all of these vulnerabilities within the specified timeframe. So each vulnerability gets a, a due date, essentially. And that came and, out by the Department of Justice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I forget the number. There's like 20 plus federal civilian agencies now. But yes, right now it's not applicable to like the, the Department of Defense and, you know, national security agencies and whatnot quite yet. It's, it's just the, the civilian side. But what we've seen and what's kind of interesting is that it has been adopted by a lot of those agencies as well in the DOD. And then it's been adopted by private sector organizations across the world. And, you know, personally, I think it's just because CISA has a, has a really good reputation in terms of like the guidance they're putting out and the intelligence they're putting out. So when they make recommendations like this, a lot of folks pay attention. And then secondly, the, this Kev list is, is really one of the few free sources of vulnerability intelligence that is, that is really actionable for vulnerability prioritization purposes anyway. You know, how is this different than the National Vulnerability Database that's been around for a while? Yeah. So the National Vulnerability Database, for those that don't know, that's um, probably the closest thing we have to the full list of all known vulnerabilities. There's about, I think there's 190,000 or 195,000 vulnerabilities in total in the NVD. And so just for some perspective here, there are just under 800 vulnerabilities in the CISA CAV. So we're talking maybe half a percent. Um, so it helps to you know narrow the list down. Uh, but more importantly, I think NVD doesn't really provide any intelligence or any context around vulnerability exploitation activity. So that's really the gap that that the Kev is filling here. Got from uh, over a hundred thousand down to eight hundred sounds great. But as a practitioner who has to deal with this every day, eight hundred still huge. So you know, is there any? further dicing of the information that organizations can do within the CAV to further prioritize. Yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, going down to 800 is, is great from 100 plus thousand, but uh, ultimately you want to narrow the list to a much smaller list of what's most urgent and, and highest risk to your organization. And to do that, you, you really have to leverage other sources of vulnerability intelligence, other feeds. And that's because, you know, just about every vulnerability intelligence feed, you know, has gaps. None of them are comprehensive. So the, the organizations that are kind of most mature in this area are incorporating uh, commercial vulnerability intelligence feeds. Uh, they're incorporating internal vulnerability intelligence around, you know, the threat actors and groups that are targeting their organization. And then they're also pulling in things like CISA, CISA KevList. And, and using it all together to, to really prioritize and, and kind of narrow that list down from hundreds to maybe, you know, 10 or less of the most important ones. Yeah. And, and also, I assume that, you know, some of them don't, some of the vulnerabilities don't apply to every industry. So I think you, before when we talked, there may have been some that were OT specific or financial specific. So that can narrow down the list too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we know, for example, we have APTs that are targeting, you know, private companies and very specific sectors, right? APT 33 is known for targeting energy companies and, and the, the energy companies that are 
really doing a good job in risk-based vulnerability management, they understand the APT, like APT33's tool set and which malware they're using. And they're ultimately prioritizing vulnerabilities that APT33 is known to exploit. And I use APT33, there's others, obviously, that, that target the energy sector. But, but that's kind of the thinking uh, in some of the more mature organizations today at how to really prioritize and get to you know, the most important vulnerabilities to, to patch and remediate. Yeah. I, um, this gives me flashbacks to when I was in the vulnerability management world. And, and back then, the, the way to prioritize was you had a gazillion line list in a database of here's all the vulnerabilities that we found. And then you would find out whether they're internal, uh, intranet or externally facing or in a DMZ zone. And then you figured out, was it high, medium, low, critical? And then based upon that, you said you got three days, you got two weeks, you got six months, which was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> six months, that's a long time. I, right. <laughs> well, that's how it was. You couldn't get time. Um, but what I really like about Nucleus is that you are taking not just the CVE, but you're adding in that intelligence to to give it more than like, well, it's a high, so you have three days with nothing behind it. So I like that you know you're you're taking that intelligence around adversaries. What other bits of information comes with the CVE, the APT thirty three, or whatever group? What other types of information can come out of that threat intelligence? Sure, sure, yeah. So so as an example, I think uh, the Mandiant. Advantage platform that that we use at Nucleus and we integrate with has it's either thirty or forty data points in their in their, in their vulnerability intelligence product about each individual vulnerability and you know the truth is that every organization kind of views risk differently and wants to prioritize based on different things so a lot of organizations view ransomware for example as one of their top risks so if a vulnerability is known to be exploited by ransomware or maybe some other type of malware, they want that at the top of their list of things to patch. Zero-day vulnerabilities are another good example. And so, you know, we've got a flag that says whether or not it's a zero-day. And these are important because obviously you need to monitor them closely while you wait for a patch. Um, Sometimes you have to implement compensating controls while you're waiting for a patch. And so things like this, uh, how, how easy is the vulnerability to exploit? Uh, and whether or not the exploit requires user interaction. Those are important kind of characteristics of vulnerabilities as well, because if vulnerabilities are trivial to exploit, attackers can and most likely will automate mass exploitation. So you want to patch these really quickly. Uh, And then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention all of the attributes around asset and business context, as, as you kind of alluded to, things like to what degree the asset or the service is exposed uh, on the network, you know, is it internet facing? Is it in a DMZ? Those are important uh, questions to answer for for prioritization as well. Uh, how sensitive is the data that's that's on the asset that's hosted on the asset? How important is the functionality provided by the asset? These also have to be taken into account. Not necessarily threat intel, uh, more kind of business context and intel. Yeah, all, all part of the the threat profile for the business. Exactly. Um, I like that you mentioned you brought out the um, how easy is it to exploit the vulnerability so you can create these automated tools. So to me, that really speaks to who are these threat actors? How are they using this? And then I really like the ability to pivot from, well, there's one vulnerability, one CVE. But once you identify the threat actor, you can go and see the different types of exploits they're performing, the different types of things that they're going after. So you're really looking at a threat actor, not just a CVE like we did 20 years ago. 
So I've seen things come a long way. Exactly. And it's that that correlation that is, um, you know, and that's generally a level of sophistication that that most organizations don't have yet that we're kind of trying to to push people towards. But uh, going back to like the different sources of vulnerability and threat intelligence, you know, that's something that that the CISA Kev won't give you. It won't it won't give you the attribution as far as who is exploiting these vulnerabilities. That's something that you really have to go out and 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 get a commercial vulnerability intelligence feed for. Well, so so once you do that, you get the CISA Kev list. You get uh, you bring in the intel through a platform such as your own. All the all the world's problems are solved, right? Everything's everything's good to go. Silver bullet. In- inflation comes down. Gas prices. <laughs> uh, everything. Yes. Uh, world hunger, of course. Um, no. Well, you know, vulnerability prioritization is really important, of course, but it's it's really just one of many processes and subprocesses in risk-based vulnerability management. And so while doing all of this extremely well and correlating your vulnerabilities to threat intel can have a huge impact, what, what we've found is that some of the biggest problems company ha- com- companies have are often centered around communication issues, believe it or not. And this is because vulnerability management processes involve so many different stakeholders, folks in different areas of the business with different backgrounds, different skills, and they're all required to kind of collaborate and, and communicate together effectively for everything to work. So, you know, if you don't know, for example, who in the organization owns specific computers and assets and services and who owns the, the vulnerabilities on those assets and who who's responsible for patching those, if those things aren't defined and there's not a way for those people to communicate well, vulnerability management just can't happen uh, quickly, as, as, as quickly as it needs to happen. Yeah. So in, in these platforms, in your platform, are there ways to, you know, annotate vulnerabilities to say this, I can't patch it because, or I'll patch it tomorrow, or, you know, what kind of communication is in your platform? Yeah, exactly. So so when we think about things like risk, risk acceptance, um, you know, who has the authority to accept risk in the organization that, you know, everyone needs to understand that it needs to be documented when risk acceptance occurs you know, in some cases, you're you're not actually going to fix the vulnerability because you have compensating controls and you've determined that it's going to be too expensive to fix or it's going to take too much time. So the compensating controls reduce the risk of that vulnerability and, and that has to be captured somewhere and there has to be a lot of communication to occur to get to that conclusion. In in terms of threat intelligence and things things like Sisakev, we see a lot of risk adjustment. So, you know, the 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 default Obviously, the default severity from a scanning tool is one thing. Then you, you know, you take all of this threat intelligence and try to uh, form a, a risk calculation in an automated way, but that's not always correct. Um, so, so you have risk, you have decisions to adjust risk higher or lower based on certain things, and and you need again somewhere to collaborate with lots of different stakeholders to make those things happen. So, those those are all the types of things that that we also do kind of within the platform to make vulnerability management happen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's come a long way. Cause I used to, used to say, Hey, patch this. And someone would say no. And then 30 days later, Hey, patch this. And they would say no. Uh, so <laughs> it's nice to see these collaborations are happening, but there's also a large piece of the industry that doesn't have these sorts of platforms. How, how do you suggest, or how are you seeing them deal with these long lists of vulnerability vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean the truth is I think 
probably most organizations are, I would say with confidence, most, most organizations do not have a platform, a vulnerability management platform like Nucleus in place. The larger the enterprise is, the more pain they're probably feeling from a lot of these processes, the more breaches and compromises they have. So the more they're kind of leaning into to platforms like this. But what we see today is, is that a lot of the, the customers that reach us, they're just getting started. They haven't used a solution like this. They're still using spreadsheets uh, with you know crazy macros. They're still using primarily email for communication. And you know, they might be using a ticketing system or an issue tracker that you know some IT folks are kind of manually driving, but there's really no automation in place. And what happens is as you, you know, as the organization gets bigger and they're trying to scale, the, the vulnerability management team will move slower and slower. And so it just becomes more and more of a problem over time. And then, you know, of course, you add to that all of the, you know, the technology landscape with cloud and containerization and, you know, all these new database technologies, you've got a lot more vulnerability scanning tools that have come to market. So a lot more data to process and analyze. So the problem just becomes more and more exacerbated. Well, that's so that, I was going to ask you about cloud. How does cloud change things? So it just makes things <laughs> simpler and more complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, it, it, it kind of changes things in the sense that it brings with it, you know, new tools for discovering vulnerabilities. So now we have cloud configuration scanners that are finding vulnerabilities and weaknesses in, in your cloud accounts where, you know, you have new types of assets, obviously, with cloud, things like you know, buckets and Lambda functions and all these things that now have to be assessed for vulnerabilities as well, where before, you know, you just had computers and web apps. And then, you know, with cloud, obviously, you've got, you know, your, your approach to scanning has changed. So you're doing a lot more kind of agent-based scanning, using tools like Amazon or the cloud's vulnerability scanning tools that are that are built in. So a lot of kind of interesting new things to think about and, and deal with, but the overarching kind of vulnerability management approach doesn't really change at all. So your approach for leveraging and, and correlating vulnerability intelligence and for prioritizing vulnerabilities really doesn't change. You know, you just have some new tools and some different ty- types of assets to deal with. But for the most part, it doesn't change your, your higher level kind of program. Yeah. Although it does bring to mind the idea of open platforms that you can accept any types of feeds. You just mentioned some that you know, hadn't, hadn't crossed my mind that you need to incorporate into your platform. So, you know, as all organizations are moving towards these product inclusive tools or product agnostic, product inclusive, whatever the term is of the week, what you just spoke about really highlights the need for that product agnostic approach. Absolutely. Yeah. There are new, new tools, new types of tools being, um, you know, brought to market all the time. So we see, you know, now API vulnerability scanners and obviously cloud vulnerability scanners, OT vulnerability scanners, you know, specialized scanners for detecting vulnerabilities in OT environments. And and so an average, I think the average enterprise that we work with probably has somewhere between 10 and 15 different sources of vulnerability information from these different tools. And then of course, they also have internal pen testers finding vulnerabilities and third-party assessors. And, and so, yeah, it's just this massive you know, swirl of vulnerability information everywhere. So that's where it really becomes important to try to bring it all together into one place and kind of normalize it that way. Yeah, the, <laughs> you just overwhelmed me, but let's bring it back to Kev because that's <laughs> the point of the CISA Kev, right? Is to kind of distill this down into, into some priorities. 
But if there's a list of 800 vulnerabilities, I fix 750 of them and accept the risk on the others. I'm not really done, right? Because change keeps happening. So how have you seen, you know, the continuous change of organizations affect, you know, your tools and your customers? Right. So, you know, once you've, I guess, automated kind of your tooling and your processes and and say you're using Kev to do risk-based vulnerability management, you've kind of set yourself up for success. But to your point, yes, things are changing all the time. I think there are 50 plus new vulnerabilities added to the NVD each day. CISA Kev updates their list and adds, you know, anywhere from one to generally five or 10 uh, about every week or two. And so you have to constantly scan your environments to see how you're impacted by these new vulnerabilities. You have to continuously analyze the intelligence around these vulnerabilities, which is changing hour by hour. I, you know, I mentioned we integrate with, with Mandiant's uh, platform and we receive some days hundreds of updates to different vulnerabilities and all of this metadata and these attributes about these vulnerabilities, it's changing all the time, right? What, what was not exploited yesterday might be exploited today or what was not exploited this morning might be this afternoon. So yeah, there's this constant state of flux. And, and so there's, there's always work to do, uh, unfortunately. And, and the key is really trying to focus your program on automating everything you can really when it comes down to it. Yeah, I have, I have a funny story about about change back when I was doing vulnerability scanning was we had one user who would turn off a certain service because he mm-hmm. knew when we were going to do our scanning and then would come <laughs> in the next morning and turn it on. So automate that. <laughs> so he automated the disabling of the service so you guys wouldn't find his vulnerability. Okay, that's, that's clever. That's a good <laughs> Clever, perhaps not uh, achieving the goal that we were going after. If you, could, if you could automate disabling it uh, when an attacker goes to exploit it, that would be that, that, that would, would be better. Be, that would be perfect. That would be perfect. <laughs> so, if we have organizations out there doing things manually or having their own, developing their own vulnerability management tools, and then they decide, nope, I need to get in intelligence. I need to adopt a platform such as such as your own at Nucleus Security. What does that process look like? What sort of success have you seen? with customers kind of moving from this do-it-yourself to these automated platforms? Yeah, so it's interesting when you take uh, organizations that, that haven't used a platform like this, you know, they, they, they have to kind of rewrite their bigger vulnerability management plan and just rethink how they want to do vulnerability management because everything's happening so much faster now. So when you think about, let's say, um, a, a program that's doing this manually, obviously, it requires a lot more resources. So we, we bring in customers that, that have a small army of folks that are kind of manually analyzing all of this data in an enterprise. And so, so the level of effort decreases tremendously. That's great. Uh, what, what we also see pretty quickly is the, is the time to remediate vulnerabilities. That window of time shrinks to be a lot smaller because just because of the manual work involved in, in, in analyzing vulnerabilities, you know, we can shrink what, what was taking weeks to, you know, minutes or hours in some cases, as far as the analysis goes. Uh, so that's, that's powerful. But what we, uh, you know, we have a case recently with a customer that had a pretty large operation where they had folks manually all day, every day, uh, reviewing and analyzing scan data. And they were continuously scanning. They were doing that part right. 
But what happens in those cases also that, that people don't realize is that there's a, a lot of human error. And so in this case, um, th- this customer discovered, I believe it was just over 40 new high-risk vulnerabilities that were just being missed. They were being accidentally filtered out of, in some spreadsheet. And, were, and so they were just completely invisible to the vulnerability management team. And so when they brought in Nucleus and set up the automation to you know, correlate threat intelligence and automatically kind of prioritize things, they surfaced... 40 new vulnerabilities that were that were um, you know either critical or high risk and so that was uh, that was something that wasn't really expected uh, you know that was a, that was kind of icing on the cake yeah uncovering uncovering user error and providing <laughs> consistency which we definitely need all right well let's let's wrap this up and I want to get back to CISA Kev. okay so it was just introduced in November November of 2021 so we're not even a year into this but how, is, how have you seen it change so far? And what sort of changes are you looking forward to in the near future? Sure. So, so far, honestly, the CAV hasn't changed much at all. In fact, I don't believe they've added any new fields or, or context to the data. They do obviously add new vulnerabilities to the list, generally on a weekly basis. So that's probably just about the only change that I've seen. The biggest thing in my mind that's that's missing and the biggest opportunity there is is including some additional context around that exploitation activity that that they say is occurring. So for example, we don't really know if they observed the vulnerability being exploited one time or a million times, right? There's no there's no volume or kind of, or quantity included. And we don't know if they observed the exploit on an internal network, or if they're seeing exploitation activity across the internet, that would be great to know. Uh, it'd be nice to understand when the activity, the exploitation activity was observed. So was it yesterday or was it five or 10 years ago? And, you know, so how historical is some of this exploitation activity? So personally, I think it would be amazing if, if CISA provided some level of attribution to the exploitation as well, so that we know which which threat actors and groups are responsible. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement, and and all of this stuff today, I believe, is is information that CISA probably knows, but you know they're unable to reveal it for different reasons, right? They can't reveal their sources and methods. They probably have some of that data is proprietary. So it's no fault of CISA's, I don't believe. I think if it was up to them, they would kind of add all this context. But in the meantime, that's you know why it's really important to, you know, again, to bring in additional vulnerability intelligence feeds and, and do that correlation because you can't rely on on any one of them in particular. Yeah. Yeah. The, the context is, is what we all need in all of our uh, cybersecurity efforts, right? Absolutely. So, well, we'll be interested to see how it evolves over, you know, even if as it comes to the one year anniversary of its release. So, well, thank you. Thank you, Steve, for joining me today. I really appreciate your insights into you know, how vulnerability management has changed and how you know, the CISA organization is helping out not only civilian organizations, but those globally around the world. So thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Carrie. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. And thanks to all of our listeners out there. Please join us next time for the Defenders Advantage Frontline Stories.